1: Well, it's time for the NFL draft again. If you're looking for expert breakdowns of each team's needs, top draft picks, and insider information, we have a show here at Podcast One Sports with Ross Tucker called Ross Tucker's Football Podcast. Ross played in the NFL for seven years, currently a broadcaster and writer. It's a great show. I personally have been invested in it. The 49ers drafted an offensive tackle in the first round, so not something that I necessarily knew about. So great to have somebody with knowledge, especially in the Podcast One Sports Network. Ross has great insight and access, so you can download the Ross Tucker Football Podcast at Podcast One and at Apple Podcasts. Remember to rate and review. They always want to hear your feedback. Welcome to Real Gym Radio. So happy to have you on for this podcast. And I just had the itch to talk to Derek Bodner, writer on the Sixers for The Athletic, and just a fabulous person to talk with, and a great point to talk about the Sixers, partially because the other series are still in flux in the Eastern Conference, and there's a lot that I want to discuss there, but it's kind of weird to do it when they're not over. So Derek and I go through the regular season, through the playoffs, who the Sixers should want to face in the second round, all those sorts of topics, a lot of really fun stuff there. And conversation runs a little bit more than an hour. It's brought to you by our friends at True Car. Great place to buy a new or used car. And hopefully you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: It's my pleasure, Danny.
1: You and I have talked over the years on real gym radio and off real gym radio a lot about the Sixers, and it is pretty amazing i was thinking about it this week when i was thinking about having you on about how we have been optimistic at various moments in time and now that optimism turned to reality i think more quickly than most people were expecting and even maybe to a point more quickly than we were expecting
0: danny we have been talking about this very day i feel like for four years running and on the one hand, it's been, you know, at the Sixers, what, Sam Hin- Hinkey would have taken over about five years ago to the day or five years ago within a couple of weeks to the day. And on the one hand, that's a pretty short amount of time, I feel like, to build a 50-win team that can last a decade. On the other hand, it does feel like we've been talking about this for a while and for it to actually be here and for it to have come this quickly. I mean, this is a team that four months ago was 14 and 18. And I think I looked at that and I said, look, they had a really tough early portion of the schedule. I predicted them for about 42 wins. I don't think they're off course just because they had a a tough early stretch. And for them now, you know, they've won 20 out of 21 games. I think they're, what, like 22-2 and at the Wells Fargo Center since December 23rd. And for them to have now won their first-round playoff series against the Miami Heat, which wasn't the strongest competition, but for them to have easily dispatched Miami Heat, it does feel like this has all come together very quickly.
1: Yeah, and I think that even within the scope of this series, which is now completed against Miami, it kind of happened the same way where, so I had picked the Sixers to win, but partially due to their inexperience and partially due to you know not the uncertainty of Joel Embiid's status, I picked the Sixers to win, but win in seven, and I felt pretty good about that, you know, just the idea of, oh, it's going to take them some time to figure it out, playoff intensity, and I had some misgivings about Miami's offense in particular, and for them to kind of go through those processes, and also win a couple of games when they're Shots weren't falling, especially from three, is a very important sign because... Playoff games rarely go to plan, and one of the big challenges that happens is not only do you have to survive that, but you have to survive that against a team that is capable in one way or another of making life hard on you.
0: Yeah, and you, you bring that up. You know, they had a, a really big offensive explosion in the second half of game one, and then they really struggled offensively in games two, three, and four, especially four where, you know, during the first two and a half quarters or so, they, it seems like they turned it over on pretty much every, every trip down the court. And for them to come away with wins in, in you know, the, I looked it up. They won a the second half in all five games, which early in the season, this team never did. And I think they won nine out of ten second half quarters, losing the very final quarter of game five by a point. So for a young team to come out, not play their best basketball a lot during the first half of the series. He had one series or one one half where Justice Winslow just went insane and was making every perimeter shot. I think he scored 20 some points in the first half, uh, which he hadn't scored. And I think I think he reached a, a point plateau that he hadn't reached in about a year and a half, and he did that in a half of play. They came back, they won that game. They had another game where they had, gosh, it must have been 20 turnovers in the first two and a half quarters. They came back and they won that game. And part of that, you know, they executed better offensively, but a big part of that was they just, they dominated defensively in the second half to a degree, which I Agreed. In part, was because of Miami's limitations, but in part, once Joel B came back on the court, for as rusty as he was offensively, and it, he just—you saw three weeks of of time off in the way he played offensively. He came back and he completely dominated those games. Defensively, and when you have that kind of combination of skill level in what they can do with Ben Simmons in transition, with JJ Reddick and Marco Bellinelli in the half court, and with Joel Embiid posting up at times when he's at full speed, and you combine that with a physicality that I thought they showed in terms of Embiid in the paint and scoring and rebounding and defending, and also the, the ability to shut them down. I mean, they are a, a dangerous team. There is still a little bit of fear that youth will at one point catch up to them. Uh, so far, it hasn't. And, and I put a lot of that on Ben Simmons and the way he's handled this pressure. But they are a surprise real contender in the Eastern Conference. And it's, a, you know, it's it's been a pretty dramatic turnaround.
1: And it's also so striking in the East because, and you could even make an argument in in the broader circumstances, though there is a big exception in the West, that in the East, when you're looking at the next potential round, and obviously the first round is far from over, considering we're recording this on Friday morning and only one series in the Eastern Conference is done already. But these teams aren't necessarily walking... I think Cleveland, as of right now, I think Cleveland and Toronto are both going to make it through this. But neither one of them is walking out of this unscathed. I think some of the concerns and misgivings that we had about them are certainly present. And with Philly, I mean... That you know, they're they're not a perfect team, far from it. But I, I would not have expected to walk out of this first round series feeling more, like the playoffs had given me more confidence about them and less confidence about the Raptors and the Caps.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's there's realistically two teams that don't have in the Eastern Conference that don't have a potentially fatal flaw, just a, a real crippling weakness, and that's Toronto. And you could argue that their weak their weakness is maybe playoff basketball, and we'll see if whether if they can vex those demons. And the Sixers and every other team from the Cavs defense to Boston's offense, they have some to Milwaukee's decision making and scheme. They have real crippling weaknesses that, that you would say would, would put them at a real disadvantage in a playoff series. And again, to be talking, I think when you looked at the this roster construction, you, you looked at Simmons and Embiid and you said they have the makings of such a team down the line where they can, you know, really dominate on both ends of the floor. They, they really won't have, I mean, they still have the turnovers, but outside of that, no real crippling weaknesses but again, just for it to come this fast, for all the pieces to fit together, for Redick and Bellinelli and, and, and Ilyasova to give them, you know, viable depth, it's it's been, like I keep going back to, it's just been a, a huge surprise for fans of this franchise, even the ones who bought into this rebuild, for it to be coming this quickly. And the goal of this team, you know, when it started the season, make the playoffs. Then all of a sudden you're like, they, they can win 50 games. They can get the three seed. And now I think if the Sixers don't win or don't make it to the, at least the Eastern Conference Finals, fans in this town will be really disappointed and it's just it's it's a little startling around the team every day to be honest
1: expectations can change really quickly i experienced this firsthand myself and a series that has gotten lost a little bit actually wrote about this in my book is in 2013 the warriors were the I think they were the seven seed, and they they beat the Nuggets in six games, nearly lost the sixth game, but they came back and won it, or actually just held on and won it. Then they're facing the Spurs... And at that point, nobody really had any expectations, you know? It's like, this the San Antonio Spurs. And remember, this is the 2013 San Antonio Spurs. Right. And the Warriors had, like, I think it was like an 18-point lead in game one and blew that lead and then, and then came back and won game two. And there are people who kind of still kick themselves that the Warriors didn't win that series. And... Sure, they absolutely could have. I mean, that, that, strangely enough, I think the Warriors gave the Spurs the best threat they had until Cleveland in the NBA Finals, of course, that year. And that's how quickly things can change. Because once especially when it's on the optimistic side, though we're seeing a little bit of that from Trailblazers fans on the other side, you calibrate very, very quickly. And sometimes that could be, you know, rushing to judgment because it's a small piece of information, but the Sixers have this potential. Like the the theory of this team to me is very sound. And one of the the data points with that is because this is, it lines up with the regular season. If this was just a three game sample size, you wouldn't say much about that. But Joel Embiid has played 91 minutes so far in the playoffs, and the Sixers have a 94.3 defensive (laughs) rating during that time. And I've talked about Miami's, you know, their limitations and all that kind of stuff, but the Sixers defend when he's on the floor, and it makes sense that they're shakier when he's not on the floor because they don't have a reasonable facsimile of Joel Embiid.
0: Yeah, and I try to, in terms of expectations, I try to stay pretty well-grounded, especially covering a team. And like you said, if it was just a Miami series, I mean, there's so many warts with Miami, especially offensively, like we've said, that you know, there are other series they'll play where if they come out and they commit 27 turnovers, they rather, you know, Miami was able to build a 10, a 12-point lead while the Sixers were, were turning it over on almost every possession a good team probably builds up a 25-point lead. And we're not talking about a comeback win because you just can't make up that kind of ground. But because Miami doesn't have the firepower, Sixers were able to maintain, you know, stay within striking distance. And as we go deeper in the playoffs, maybe not if they draw the Boston Celtics uh, because they have have very similar offensive limitations. But as you start getting into that Cleveland, you know, Toronto realm, you can't kick yourself in the foot that often. So I don't want to overreact to one playoff series. But they did just have a 16-game winning streak that immediately preceded that. And again, not against great competition, but the consistency they had day in and day out. It was certainly impressive, and I mean, you look at any metric from January 1st, they're playing as good of basketball as anybody in the Eastern Conference, probably better. Uh, And you can go wins and losses. You can go net rating. It it doesn't matter. They're playing more along the lines of the, you know, well, not the Warriors because they had that struggle, um, but really realistically with anybody in the league. So you don't want to make too much out of one series. You don't want to recalibrate your expectations too drastically, but it's hard when you've had this consistent of a a reinforcement for for, for this long of a time.
1: Yeah, that's certainly a fair point. And something that I've looked at for a long time as the kind of a good calibrator for the impact of a center defensively, especially a a rim protecting center, ideally, is how it affects how they affect the shot distribution of the other team. And so there are certainly always a lot of noise with on off numbers because it's not just that player that changes. You know, there are heavy correlations in minutes, especially with a starting five. But for this season, so not just looking at the Miami series, though it broadly aligns with that, Sixers opponents have taken 2.5% less of their shots at the rim in the restricted area during the season, and they go from shooting 64% at the rim to 27% at the rim when Joel Embiid is in, and that is in line with some of the best of the game. I mean, I got frustrated, and I shouldn't get frustrated by Twitter, but I got <laughs> frustrated by Twitter that, so there was this argument that was going on for the whole season about kind of like, basically, can Rudy Gobert play enough games to win Defensive Player of the Year? And I ended up picking Gobert. But what I got frustrated by was these people basically saying the only reason Gobert won't win is because he didn't play enough games. And I'm like, Joel Embiid's case here is legitimately good too you don't have to denigrate one guy's case in favor of the other you could just say hey this guy is better than the other one or has had a better season but they're both amazing and Embiid you know like he's a game changer for them
0: no he really is and when you talk about a modern day big man yeah you want that rim protection that's still still hugely important but you want a guy who can react to the game and make correct decisions on the fly and a guy who can cover ground and really, the NBA nowadays covering ground has become more and more and more important. Like we saw with Hassan Whiteside, who r- realistically had maybe more of a indifference to covering ground rather than an ability to. But a guy who won't cover ground will get run off the floor in the playoffs, and that's been you know that's been beaten over our head over the last four or five years. And Joel Embiid's the answer to that because he can cover and ground. He can still protect the rim at an elite level. And, oh, by the way, he can give you 24 a night if he needs to. Yeah, when he comes back on the court, like you said, on-off numbers tend to be noisy, and no individual player is responsible for those numbers. But there probably isn't a a, a, a position that is a more direct correlation to those numbers than when you talk about defense and a center spot. And with Embiid, you're now going on two years' worth of data, where it's pretty clear that he makes a giant-sized impact on the Sixers' defense, and, yeah, I mean, he's going to end up being, I think, probably runner-up in defensive player of the year. I do think Gobert is going to get it, which is an interesting year because so many people were hurt or in, in Draymond's case had a little bit of a down year, or at least the team did. And now you have a guy, you know, Embiid played, what, 62 games? Gobert played 56. They're going to end up winning the award. And I I don't think it's particularly close. Like I think those two players certainly did have the two biggest impacts on team defense this season.
1: Somebody else who had a big impact on the Sixers defense and I hope gets recognition for not defensive player of the year because that's unrealistic. But I think broadly speaking, but actually when I read sometimes the comments on your pieces on the athletic, I see it there, too, is I think Robert Covington's defense is very underrated. And yes, he has these inconsistencies offensively, but he is as a team defender, as a one on one defender, incredibly important to their success on that end.
0: Yeah, and this is it's interesting you bring this up because I, I feel like this is a, a constant debate in Sixers Land, which is funny because this is a this is a place where the Philadelphia prides themselves on, you know, really gravitating towards smart players who give constant effort and maybe make more than, than, than you would have expected. The underdog story is what we're supposed to be built off of and he seems like he's chronically underrated in Philadelphia. I think part of it, I feel like every time I get a well actually on Twitter, and like you said, we really shouldn't be paying attention to Twitter, but uh, you know, we are humans and it happens. And every time I get a well actually on his defense on Twitter, it's when he has an off shooting night. And whenever he struggles offensively, then people want to come out and say, well, he's not actually that good of a defender. I think part of the problem is he's matched up on opposing point guards so often. You go back and you look at the matchup data, in the Heat series, he's defending Goran Dragic on 35, 40, 45 possessions each night, whereas second place or second highest defender was probably like 15 possessions each night. So I think part of the problem is if you had asked me at the beginning of the season, Ben Simmons should not be defending point guards. And I would have said Robert Covington, while he can switch on to point guards, maybe give a change of pace. Look, he's not a natural point guard defender either. And he's probably still not a natural point guard defender. But I think a lot of people will see, you know, Goran Dragic. he is a good enough player. He's a shifty enough player where he's going to get by his guy at certain points of the game regardless. And especially a six eight, six nine guy like Covington, who's maybe a little bit out of position. So I think we see that and sometimes maybe we forget all the things he does do. And, and just the sheer versatility of a guy who can, you know, if he's defending Goran Dragic for 40 possessions, who can competently defend him for 35 of those. While also being able to defend a four, switch on to Kelly Olenek and, and deny him the ball inside, rebound in traffic, get his, you know, get, lead the league in deflections and still at a very high level, defend the two, three and four spot. His versatility, Covington's versatility combined with Embiid's backline defense. They're realistically one piece away, probably a, you know, a six, four, six, five guard. Hello, Mark Hell Fultz. If he ever gets his, his shooting together away from being possibly the best defense in the league and Covington is a a very very big part of that I think it'll be interesting to see whether or not he makes an all-defensive team this year I think he's uh, I think he's deserving
1: I think he's deserving as well and this goes back to something that's frustrated me for a while with Avery Bradley so Avery Bradley wonderful man-to-man defender and potentially you know we'll see how it happens potentially a Sixers offseason target but I think that in a way that parallels one-on-one offense you know the kind of hero ball stuff isolation ball that part of defense ends up getting overrated because it's easy to see who's good and the versatility team defense part of it gets underrated because it's more challenging to appreciate and in certain points you kind of have to take it on faith because it's it's hard to to explain to be like hey he's in the right place at the right time watch off ball watch all this kind of stuff but you see those players and oftentimes it's that their teams outperform expectations on the defensive end or something like that and Covington has, to me, become one of those guys. And as you said, if they can add in, if the Sixers can add in somebody on the smaller side defensively, you talked about being somebody six four six five. I would love if they can... Make it work offensively for it to be somebody six 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 seven. If you could make that work, then this team can go to a different level, partially because they'd add another good defender, but also partially because then you ask less of guys that have already delivered more than we would have expected,
0: oh, sure. I mean, size defense if I ever concede size defensively, it's only in an effort to. Maybe be realistic about how many of those guys are out there, uh, certainly, if you can get a guy six 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 seven who can defend a one, sure sign me up every time you know with covington it 's a lot like offense right like everybody if somebody misses an open three, everybody in the building sees it, but if somebody spaces the floor so that a, a pick and roll a big man can dive to the basket. Very few people are going to see that. Defensively is a lot the same way. If Covington, you know, chases a guy off the screen and denies an entry pass, very few people see that. They just go to their next option. The play moves on. But if, if Goran Dragic, you know, has a, a hesitation move, gets into the paint, and either scores or dishes out, everybody in the building sees that. And I think because of that, like you said, we tend to overrate, you know, those one-on-one defenders and underrate those guys who are really elite off the ball or in a team concept. And not that one man-to-man defense isn't valuable, isn't even potentially extremely valuable. It just shouldn't necessarily come at the expense of some of the other things that are a little more difficult to quantify. And a guy like Avery Bradley, you know, if he's a, the fifth cog in a defensive scheme, if he's alongside Embiid and Simmons and Covington and those type of, of, of real elite team defenders, I think that on-the-ball defense probably becomes even a little more valuable. But I do agree with your overall point that it's just what what's easier to see, what stands out the most, what... You know, 100% of the fancy is always going to be valued a little bit more than what maybe 40% of the fancy. You know, even, even. You know, me and you and other degenerates like this, who also, by the way, it's our job to do so. will go back and I'll rewatch possession five times. and I'll hit the rewind button. I'll just keep watching, watching, watching. And you can see every action. I don't, I don't expect everyone to watch, rewatch a game five times. So it really is. I mean, he's a phenomenal defender. He's become so much smarter of a defender. We get into a lot of debates with Covington in Sixers land on basketball IQ. And does he have the worst basketball IQ on the team? And a lot of times I'll be like, well, what? how do you define basketball IQ? Because I feel like whenever we bring that up, it's only ever to talk about offensive decision making. And I think he has probably the best defensive basketball IQ on his team. And I think it really shows.
1: Yeah, he's definitely on the short list there, and I think part of that Embiid M- will get there probably, but it just—I think he just needs the reps, and it yeah. is—it is consistently shocking to me. And th- this run after he came back from injury is a, a nice little microcosm of his career. Every time Joel Embiid misses. A period of games whether that's the two years at the beginning of his career or you know a couple weeks to something most guys show more rust than he does and certainly as you mentioned at the very beginning he showed some of that offensively but defensively he picks things up so quickly it's it's like he, you dropped him on a treadmill that was already moving, and he's just like, I can do this.
0: Yeah, no, and he, he's been that way from day one. The only, the only problem he ever had at Kansas, maybe during his first year, was foul trouble. And it, dialing back that aggression just a little bit was something he had to work on. But his instincts have always, from day one, just been elite. And it didn't matter how little organized basketball he played. That was there, and certainly I think if I were if I were to classify maybe defensive instincts, I think Embiid's probably at the top of the list for this team. Whereas maybe just overall, I feel like Covington's seen a little bit more, and he's going to make those 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 reactions a little more consistently. But yeah, Embiid, his I've I've always said the way he sees the game defensively and sees the floor and makes those rotations and calls them out for his teammates. For him to be doing that with how little basketball he's played and how little basketball he's played at this this level. It's uh, it, it's pretty incredible, and that's a big reason why he is. You know, it's not, it's not just seven two. It's just not the foot speed. It's not just the athleticism. It's also the mind and how quickly you can process that information. And he's incredible at that.
1: He is. Before moving on, have a quick message from our friends at TrueCar. Here are some useful car tips you might not be aware of. A coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can clean your interior. Removing excess weight from your car will improve gas mileage, and you can place your key fob to your chin to increase range. Weird, right? Well, here's another tip that you also might not know about TrueCar also helps people get used cars. That's right, TrueCar is not just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you will enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you buy new or used. And with TrueCar, users can see what others paid so they know if they are getting a good deal before buying. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with TrueCar certified dealers. When you are ready to buy a new or used car, check out TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Now back to Derek Bodner. We've gone more than 20 minutes and only obliquely talked about Ben Simmons, who his success after a year off, and, and everything that's happened with him, I think that's really been the key to all of this. As great as Joel Embiid has been, as, you know, well, I want to talk about sharks in a little bit, and Covington, I think the especially this win streak with which most of which came without Joel Embiid that Simmons and his offensive capability of course he's also playing wonderful defensively and I want to talk about that too but Simmons success being the engine of that offense is at the center of this all
0: yeah and there's two real things that just stunned me this year with Simmons and the first it was as you mentioned the defense which I'm sure if you go back I'm, I'm pretty sure we did a, a preview pod coming into the season about the Sixers that was a big concern we'll get to that The other part was just how he learned to kind of manage the aggressiveness while also keeping his turnovers down late in the season. And you go down to, you know, that that winning streak at the end of the year. I think he averaged like, and this is a far from perfect stat, but he had like a three point, a three to one assist to turnover ratio, nearly 10 assists, right around three turnovers per game during that streak. You go back even to when that, that winning streak began. You know, and you're talking about I think it was darn near 11 assists, to under three turnovers. Like he was really doing a good job managing his his turnovers. And some of those problems that he got into earlier in the season, where he would maybe jump before he was ready to to pass, where he would over dribble at times, where he would try to become more of a half court scorer than he was capable at that time. Those have all, for the most part, gone away. And when you combine that with the defensive progress that he's made and you know, he still obviously can't shoot at all, but he's been a much better finisher at the rim than I think I expected based on what we saw at LSU. I thought that would take a little more time to develop. And when you combine that with just a sheer, sheer athleticism and the size, I mean – How quick he is at 6'10 and with that body type, it still amazes me every day. And I see him, I see him on a consistent basis. He he is going to be a real matchup nightmare. And when they get, you know, right now, one of the big problems with the Sixers, and one way I think they'll end up cutting back on their turnovers a little more organically, they don't have anyone, they have to make a choice whether they want floor spacing or they want a secondary ball handler. Because there's nobody on the roster that can do both. You can't, you can't bring in TJ McConnell, McConnell, who won't shoot from the perimeter. You you get the ball handling and you get somebody else who can alleviate pressure, which I think we saw with Miami at times can throw the Sixers off, or at least it it did in game two. McConnell can help in that regard. He's not going to space the floor at all. You can bring in Bellinelli and he'll space the floor. He's not giving you any ball handling. Uh, And and Fultz, you know, after game three, he pretty much was unplayable. And he's another one where he might be able to handle the ball and alleviate pressure. He's not going to shoot. So I think when they can finally get somebody to pair with Simmons who can run, you know, a pick and roll, who can bring the ball up against pressure, who can be a secondary playmaker, and who can also shoot. I think that'll just make Ben Simmons just a little more dangerous.
1: Yeah, I agree with you there. And I'm debating whether to go down the rabbit hole now or to not go down the rabbit hole until later. But nope, screw it. Let's do it now. So (laughs) the Sixers have cap space, we've talked about that before, and so it's... I I don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of it, but basically, there'll be a time for that. But basically, it's, let's call it one max slot for a player who hasn't done... who hasn't played 10-plus years in the league. And they could clear that extra space if they really, really had to. But they have that. They also have what looks like it's going to be the 10th pick in the draft this year, and a, a couple other kind of like pieces that they could they could go in different directions. And they... as This was a point, actually, that you brought up... One of the times we were talking and it has totally gone into my way of thinking about the Sixers is this is not burning a hole in their pockets because of the way this all worked out with Covington and with Embiid with their extensions kicking in. And, you know, Simmons will be another couple of years. We'll see what happens with faults. They don't have to spend that money in 2018. They could wait. And so that leads to this fascinating decision-making process of basically who is good enough to spend on now and where is the line in terms of waiting for potentially 2019 and maybe they could get somebody then.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting discussion because on the one hand, the closer you get to an Eastern Conference Finals, the closer you get to an NBA Finals, the more you probably want to add pieces that can help. And I think that's a pretty natural reaction. On the other hand, to be able to get to a conference final – while still having max cap space, that's such a unique combination of attractive qualities to a free agent that I think burning that on somebody who isn't elite, when you don't have to, I would be pretty surprised if they do. The way I think they're going to approach this offseason, they're going to go out, they're going to make their sales pitch to LeBron. They're going to go out, they're going to make their sales pitch to Paul George. If neither of those two players are interested, I think they just they come back, they give Redick whatever it's going to take for him to come back on a one-year deal, 18, 19, who knows how many million. Come back. We'll give you we'll, we'll give you a little more than market for a one year deal because there are so few teams that have cap space. Try to bring back maybe Bellinelli and or Ilyasova. Bring the entire crew back. Make another run. Hope that maybe a little more health from Embiid. Uh, and this is a different hoping for health from Embiid because it's not the career threatening, devastating injuries, recurring injuries. It's more the he got bumped in the eye, shoulder, freak injury type thing. But hope, maybe hope he plays a little more than the 63 games he played. Get more, even more improvement from Ben Simmons, who theoretically should be the worst he'll ever be, or at least the worst he'll be for the next 9 to 10 years, which is a pretty scary thought. Get a little more development from Markel Fultz, and maybe he actually contributes next year. And run back and, and try to make another finals run, and then go for that or 2019 class. I would be pretty surprised if they burn this pretty unique opportunity to have Max cap space and be a contending team. Right now, before they they absolutely have to. So if they don't get one of their two main targets, I do think they probably end up bringing uh, bringing Redick and whatever group of Ilyasova and Bellinelli back on one year deals. It would it would surprise me honestly if they didn't.
1: That's encouraging, and I think that the success of this season has emboldened that. I think that's the right take. And i been... you know I, th-
0: I think it would be it would be one thing if Redick didn't fit so perfectly. Right. right? Because if 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 you're going to make the case that okay LeBron and Paul George didn't sign. Rather than try for, you know, Clay and Kawhi, let's get Avery Bradley because we know we can lock him into a four-year deal. Well, that almost doesn't make sense long-term because you're foregoing that chance to pursue Clay, And that doesn't really make sense short-term because I don't think he's going to help the team more than Redick will anyway. So I think they're going to end up trying to, I mean, basically have their cake and eat it too.
1: So I've been teasing in various, mostly on the Twitter NBA show, this this concept. I've, I've wanted to write about it for probably for the Athletic Philly for a long time now, but just haven't had the time. Lots of other things to do. But my operating idea right now is that I understand why a franchise will feel differently because I still have LeBron as the best player in the world right now. But this idea is... acknowledging what the Sixers do well, acknowledging how they're going to age, I personally would rather have the next 4 years of Paul George with this Sixers team than LeBron and really what that gets into is the idea of transformation versus addition. So LeBron James transforms any team he's on. That is that is what LeBron James does, that is why he is so valuable. That's why he's the second best player of all time is because he does that and he elevates damn near every team. And in certain ways he would elevate the Sixers obviously. But the combination of him being so ball dominant, you know, the jump shooting is hit or miss, you know, he's been better later in his career, but also the inconsistency defensively and all this kind of stuff. Like I, I, there are ways that he would elevate the Sixers. Whereas what Paul George does to me fits so perfectly with what Philadelphia wants because he can battle defensively. He wouldn't have to go as full bore in the regular season, but then the elevation in the playoffs, I mean, we're seeing Paul George, you know, he had that crazy game one offensively and he was fantastic in their, come back in game five, but his ability to ramp up defensively would be massive for the Sixers. He can do a little bit more with the ball in his hands, but that's not his life. He doesn't have to do it the way that LeBron does. And so I think, you know, if is asked for my opinion, I would say maybe just to appease LeBron, you make sure you make him seem like the priority, but I would rather have Paul George.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is is really a a high-class problem to have. It would be tough to ever say, Best player in basketball, we don't want to pursue you. I'm not sure I have quite the stomach or the courage for that, but I 100% see where you're coming from. And that, you know, Paul George, he can play off the ball, you know, shooting on catch and shoots, shooting coming off of the screen. He'll knock down 40% of his three point shots. You know that coming in. You can put him on ball and make him a, a secondary playmaker, put him in pick and roll spots. He can do that. He can alleviate some of that pressure. We were just talking about how the Sixers have no real combination of shooting and shot creation that they can put next to Ben Simmons. So he would he would fit perfectly like that. He can defend three positions pretty much with ease and he does that more consistently than LeBron does. I get all that. He would be an absolute perfect fit. And also by the way, he's 27 years old and you can realistically have four more years of playoff P that that you could slot into this this team and i say that nickname jokingly because that, that's one of the worst nicknames i've ever heard all that is great it might be long-term four-year contract it might end up being being better i mean the sixers with that lineup if they stay healthy which i'm a little sick of saying if they stay healthy but you, you still kind of have to do that should be a contender in their Eastern conference the entire time it would just be so hard for me to say no to lebron and even as Old as he is, how many miles he has on his tires, the baggage that does come with it, the fact that you have to, you know, really cater to him. I do wonder a little bit if he's not forced to defend the other team's best player as often as he currently is their team defense isn't as reliant on lebron as the Cavs currently is you know he would he, he could come in here and be a role player and they'd still have a top three defense in the league maybe you can get him to be a little more consistent on that end of the court if he's not relied upon offensively as much as he currently is maybe you can get that consistency back up or maybe he's just at an age where he knows a regular season doesn't matter and you're always going to deal with this anyway but it would it's a great theoretical conversation to have in in reality they probably if any of these two guys say yes they probably sign them before they have a chance to, to change their mind they are that great of players but yeah pure fit just pure fit not not you know talking about degree paul george is certainly the easier player to add into this lineup
1: You think about what that, I mean, both those guys elevate Philly's defensive ceiling to an absurd level if we're talking about the playoffs, because LeBron, we've never really gotten to see that, you know, like LeBron was central to what Cleveland did in 2016, and he would have better defensive talent around him on the Sixers, on paper, and again, you have to make the healthy caveat too, than he has ever had in his career. And LeBron's been on some some capable defensive teams, he's been on some avant-garde defensive teams and I think what makes the Sixers so compelling to me on that end of the floor is they're avant-garde in such an unusual way they play a traditional center it's that they have all these other like sized guys and don't really treat their position assignments rigidly I mean the, the biggest thing that I can credit Brett Brown on this year and there are a lot of things I can credit Brett Brown on this year is that the way that he has approached Ben Simmons I think there are probably, you know, less than five coaches, maybe even fewer than three that would handle it in the league saying, okay, this guy is going to be on, on offense. He's going to be our point guard. He's going to run the offense as, as the picket rolls that we do run. He's going to be a central part in that. But then offensively, he's just going to kind of defend whoever. And that is exactly what teams should do. They should separate, bifurcate offense and defensive roles. But that's so much easier said than done, even in the modern NBA.
0: Yeah, yeah, it really is. And it takes a a very unique, you know, to have as much don't give a shit in terms of switching and and perimeter cross matches as the Sixers do it takes a it takes a pretty unique physical athlete and again his speed his lateral mobility and and then his size and his physicality on the glass there aren't many players there aren't many archetypes that you could really do this with and it was part of the reason that you know I thought he was a clear-cut number 1 in that draft it's part of the reason why I think for as incredible as Donovan Mitchell has been, I think he's the rookie of the year this season because it's one thing to put up, you know, the scoring and the playmaking that he does. It's another thing to be able to contribute that much defensively and give the coach that much freedom in his scheme defensively, and he is very central to that.
1: Somebody else that has been essential in a way that I genuinely never expected for the Sixers this year is Dario Saric, and I thought my my idea with him, and you know, there's always a a chance that guys exceed expectations, happens all the time, but my idea with charge was okay he's looking pretty good you know was a contender for rookie of the year last year but it's like okay well you got ben simmons who offensively does many of the things charge does but just is is way better at them and you know that ended up being right but charge has done two things that i think are game-changing one he's way more viable and versatile defensively than i expected and secondly he's hitting his jump shot and i don't know if he's going to be a 39% three three-point shooter going forward i mean he also did up his free throw percentage a lot and the reason people look at free throw percentage is because you just – the volume can be there, even though Sarge took way more threes than free throws. And so he has worked his way into the conversation of, well, how do you use him as a starter as opposed to like – as as opposed to just being a part of the piece but not a central piece?
0: Yeah, and I mean he's – that shot is so – because you always looked at him and said, OK, he can rebound. He can push the ball a little bit. When he grabs a rebound, he can grab and go. He is a smart player he can certainly pass but is that shot going to come around because if not then skills great but if you can't space the floor especially around Joel Embiid and especially around Ben Simmons it's hard to find a, a fit for you and especially that's especially true when you don't have quite as much defensive potential because you are you know you're not the quickest laterally and i think for his shooting to come around it opens up you know kind of a, a secondary tertiary playmaking And also he is still a very smart defensive player. Like when we talk about him being a negative defensively, it's primarily because he's floor bound, primarily because he's not going to really move laterally all that quickly to defend a lot of the wing players, but he's in the right spots. And that counts for a lot, especially when you have guys like Simmons and Embiid and Covington to take out primary options. So I think, and also I think, by the way, I think he's gotten in a little better shape. I do think he's, he's moving a little bit better this year than he was last year. Not that, again, he's always going to be a negative in terms of foot speed, but he's not as drastically of a negative as he was. A lot of times I think fans will get a little bit unrealistic on who they consider to be untouchable. I, I, I will always go back. Walt was tra- traded. Uh, anyone can be traded. Not that I'm going to call him a core piece because your core piece are Embiid and Simmons. And if he works out, I think Foltz has the talent to be that, although I have no idea what the probability of that is anymore. But for him to now be into a core role player role, a a real part that, you know, we came into the season – some people wondered whether or not he could play with Joel Embiid. I thought that was a little bit, little bit ridiculous. But early on in his career, he didn't play well when Embiid was on the floor. That ended up working itself out. But more importantly for him to be able to now play with Ben Simmons, in part because of, of Simmons' multi-positional defensive equity, but also in part because he can space the floor so well. That is a a real great turnaround for the Sixers. And and probably, if we're being honest, is shooting a a little bit of an outlier development for where he went from to where he is now.
1: I would say that's certainly fair. And with Sharch, if he can deliver... That's great, but also being on the rookie scale contract, him coming over when he did, you know, waited one more year financially, that would have gotten a lot more complicated for them. And so now the Sixers have two more years of this. So if for whatever reason that shot doesn't doesn't fall as consistently, they can figure this out. And, and he has fallen down in terms of importance on the team just because they have all these other things. So if you know, certainly him, he could be a starter on this team. But if charge all of a sudden goes back to shooting thirty one percent. 33 percent something like that from three and maybe he maybe some of this foot speed goes back a little bit for whatever reason they can handle that because the other guys have stepped up so it's more of an additive than it was before
0: oh for sure and even even if you do end up you know again very few people are actually untouchable he's now a much more legitimate piece in a a trade in a blockbuster trade than he was before i'd love to see him stick around He's, he's fun to watch watching him go from where he was you know, first in the Croatian league, then with Efez and now to here, it's it's been, it, you know, he he's improved pretty much every year. Uh, certainly, I'm not saying the Sixers should be trading Dario Saric, but th- pretty much any outcome that happens now, it, it, it's improved by the fact that he made this kind of improvement.
1: Right, and Saric does a lot of the, the little things that I think are very good for the team. The intensity he brings rebounding adds a nice little edge to it. And also, Saric is a, a wonderful interior passer. And while I think we all hope the Sixers can have even better spacing moving forward in a couple of different ways, the ability to make those passes through tight windows to Embiid to whoever else is on the interior, that opens up something in their offense, which is very, very important.
0: Yeah, 100%.
1: Let's talk a little bit about Markel Fultz. I mean, this has been, it's its unbelievable that the Sixers season, I mean, I was very critical. I thought the over-under for them was set ludicrously high. They ended up going through that, which is amazing. And the two ways I thought that that could happen, well, I guess three. One, Joel Embiid staying healthy. You know, 63 games. I think that's pr- that's pretty close. Simmons outperforming expectations. Yep. And then I thought the third one, which I believed was mandatory, was Markel Fultz being the guy that, I thought he could be, and, and you as well. We were both super high on Marco Faults. Well, first two happened. Third 13rd yeah. one, one didn't. But as you kind of alluded to earlier, I am so conflicted about... What to take from this season for Fultz? Because if you could theoretically, you know, just excise the memories of his jump shot, or even actually his standstill shot too, if you could do that, so many of the other elements of Markel Fultz, which were an important part of why I thought he was the best player in that class, and thought it wasn't particularly close, those elements are still there. I saw him in summer league before all this weird crap happened, and you still saw all of that there. He is a talented athlete. The Kind of the the vibe he has with the ball in his hands is very unusual, and I think that works for him. The analogy that I've made is Kyrie Irving in that way, that he's just, he's not herky jerky like Harden, he's just unusual, and I think that really works for Fultz. But as with any player who is shorter than 6'8", and really you could argue any player, period, shooting is an important part of what makes them a viable and dangerous player. It is an amplifier at worst and a game changer at best.
0: Yeah, and especially with the ball in your hand, it's going to be real tough to get to his spots. I mean, it's one thing if he's a below average three-point shooter. You know, if he's hitting 33, 34, 35% of his shots, you can make do with that. But for right now, for him to be a non-existent shooter... And not not just non existent from three but non existent from seventeen feet, a smart defensive team is is i mean he's not he 's not the freak athlete ben simmons is you 're not going to be trying to guard guard Markel Fultz with James Johnson, which you have to do at times with Ben Simmons because he 's so big and so strong and so physical. Markel Fultz is going to be defended by guards, and he for as quick as he is and he 's quick and for as many moves as he has. With the ball in his hand, spin moves, hesitation moves, and he has those. He's going to need a good defense that's going to be able to take his drives of the basket away. And I think we saw that the last 10 games in the regular season when he came back. And he came back, he set the table for his teammates. I think he had over a four to one assist to turnover ratio. He was really taking care of the ball, making good reads, moving the ball. That was all great. But back then, you're playing against Denver and the Knicks and Atlanta and Brooklyn and Dallas and even Milwaukee, who who didn't care that night you're not playing those kind of defenses now and he's going to need that jump shot in order to really succeed against the elite defenses in this league if there's one real negative of this season for the Sixers and clearly you know, when Vegas sets that over under at like 40 and a half or whatever, and you think it's crazy. And I went just slightly over mostly because I was optimistic on Embiid, but I went with 42 and they end up when you have a team that wins 52 games. And now we're talking about having a real chance, a, a good chance and an Eastern conference finals appearance, a lot went right for that team. But if there's one thing that just really, he's such a big part of what they want to do. They gave up two real high draft picks, to get him, uh, you know, obviously their own number three pick and now what's likely to be the Sacramento Kings' top one protected pick next year, they gave up a lot for this kid. And they gave up a lot because he can play on the ball in the half court, alleviate some of that pressure from Simmons, which isn't his strength, off the ball when he wants to play alongside Simmons, and Simmons wants to lead, and because he has that six four frame with, you know, I think a 7-foot wingspan, and if Brown develops him, and oh, by the way, you know, Brown had developed Simmons as a defender, too. He has a little bit of a track record doing this. But if Brown can get the most out of him, he could be a real plus on that side of the court, too. So he really provided the skills that the Sixers didn't have. And, uh, you know, that pull up jump shot was a big part of, of what kind of tied all of his skills together. And to now go into this summer and have absolutely no idea, you know, we're talking about he came into camp and the jump shot wasn't right back in September. And they've been working nonstop to get that back to where it was since then. You know, you're talking October, November, December, January, February, March, April. You're talking seven months now, and he still has no ability to hit an in-game jump shot, not consistently at least. So now you're talking, well, is that, is that going to be fixed in the five months or so until camp opens up? I have no idea. I have no idea, Danny. And for a kid that you invested this much in, he's still only 19 years old. He still has a world of skill. But to have this little certainty – coming into a free agency and look, it kind of benefits Sixers where the two guys they are chasing in the summer aren't point guards. You know, they're, they're forwards, versatile forwards. If that doesn't work, I think they're going to end up bringing back their two-guard, and you just you, you live with Ben Simmons. Not that you live with Ben Simmons at the point guard. Trust me, it's, again, a high-class problem to have. But you don't necessarily have that secondary playmaker that you would ideally want. But you know you can run this back and, and at least challenge for another 51 season and a playoff berth. So that helps a little bit. You don't really have to make team-building decisions based off of where Markel Fultz is right now or even where you project him to be. But it would be great just to have a little more confidence in where, what he's going to develop into because right now I realistically have no idea.
1: I don't either. I really don't, and his ceiling is, like, the the highest outcomes are still incredibly high, and I have been impressed. You brought up the difference between the regular season and the playoffs, and I agree with that wholeheartedly. But when I watch Fultz, you know, those last 10 games, and, you know, obviously before that, even if that shot never comes, you know, it's not what they would ever want, but I think he's he would be a really good backup point guard at the bare minimum. I mean, he'd be one of the, like, one of the five best, off the top of my head, you know, point guards in that range, and he could even get into being, like, a low-end starter. The problem is the Sixers have way loftier aspirations and the assets that they provided. They can handle whatever he ends up becoming better than almost any other team could, but... A theoretical championship team needs almost everything to go right. That's just the way it is. There, there are always teams that are compiling. You know, like, let's say LeBron doesn't go to the, the Philly. He's going to go somewhere else. And that team's going to be really good. And the Rockets are amazing. The Warriors are amazing. You know, there, there will always be teams like that. That's just the way the NBA works. So you need almost everything to go right. And maybe Fultz is part of that. Maybe he isn't. But I'm still so intrigued by, by all of the elements of of his game and it's he's going to be one of the hardest guys for me to to, to kind of deal with over be here because you see all of it and it's not one of those circumstances where oh man it, it just didn't work or anything like that it's just is the jump shot going to stay broken that is really especially because defensively I think Fultz did a better job in his limited time this year than I expected sort of yep. paralleling Simmons where was this guy who Primarily when we saw them was playing in college in a year that they knew was a gap year and that their teams didn't really have lofty aspirations. So them being as awful defensively and, and we should not sugarcoat over how bad Simmons and Fultz were defensively in their years of college but it looks now like that was the aberration, at least in terms of effort, and so Fultz brings all of that to the table, but yeah, without the pull-up jumper, I mean, he could be a capable catch-and-shoot guy from three as well if, if like, you know, if we if we pretended this injury never happened, and so that's really all they need from that spot, and as you said, like, his size at the point guard spot, if he tries defensively, that opens up a lot For them on that end as well, you know, not a perfect player, even even at, you know, full strength. But he's he could be that a kind of amplifier type thing.
0: Yeah. And I mean, look, like you said, if he if he just gets a a, just give me a 17 foot pull up jump shot and we have something to work with. And if he gets that, he can at the very minimum be a, a good backup point guard. But like you said, they invested so much. I mean, when you looked at this team, you said, okay, you have NBA, you have Simmons. That's a good starting point. But in the NBA, you need three, four really high-level players to have a chance. So you looked at that and you said, okay, well, they have max cap space in you know, 2018, 2019 to work with. One of those two years, they can, they have to convince somebody in one of those two years. After that, you lose it. You had the Sixers' own pick last year, number well, after the swap, number three overall. You had the Lakers pick, which I think it was top five protected in 2015. Lakers got the second pick, top three protected in 2016, 2017. They ended up at the second pick each of those years. But at one point you were viewing that as a potential top five pick, which now that you know finally it gets to the point where it is unprotected, and now they they've finally improved, which is you know it, it happens, but I think you had maybe a little higher hopes for that pick. And then you had the Kings pick. So you had really four four avenues of getting that third elite player. And the Sixers used two of those four on Markel Fultz. Well, okay, great. They still have – maybe you could say the 10th pick they can get a high-level player. It would be a very edge-case outcome, but Paul George was drafted after that but then you have the king's pick and you have cap space in 2018 2019 and after that again trades could still materialize six have a lot of young assets but those were the the clearest paths to getting that third elite level player and to use two of those on them you know they have a lot invested in this kid uh, there's really no other way to say it than that
1: they do i i think what we can turn to is so now the the Sixers are the only team in the Eastern Conference that has already advanced to the next round, as crazy as that sounds. And the other side of the bracket is going to be, you know, the Cleveland Indy winner versus the toronto washington winner and i think we know what the sixers preferences in both those series would be that's not really it's not really rocket science to guess where they're going to go with that but the more immediate one is fascinating because on thursday the bucks won at home to force a game seven so now it's milwaukee versus boston in boston for the right to play the sixers and from the philadelphia perspective who do you think they should want to play in the next round
0: yeah it's i mean it's a good question because it's a, a pretty fascinating a, a stark contrast on the one hand, you have the Bucks, who they have, you know, a player who's just capable of stealing a game. And you saw that last night with uh you know, with Giannis. On the other hand, they are one of the most if I was a fan of the Bucks there are a few franchises I would look at as a fan and be more frustrated over than the Bucks because they have all this talent, they have all this length defensively, and they just they make so many mistakes over the course of a game, so many missed rotations, so many poor decisions. The communication just seems like it's a mess. That they underachieve so frequently, and if I'm the Sixers, and then you got Boston, who should just be overmatched in terms of, of healthy talent against the Sixers, and I'm not entirely sure how Boston expects to score against the Sixers' defense, but they're one of the most disciplined defensive teams that you'll see, and one of the most well-coached teams that you'll see. So it's it's a it's a fascinating contrast as much as i tend to bet on talent i think in this instance i would bet on decision making and scheme i respect Stevens so much as a coach and they're so consistent in their defense even though i'm not, again i'm not sure how they would score against the sixers defense that i would probably prefer if i'm rooting a sixers fan rooting for the next series i'll take my chances against Giannis and that team and that decision making before i would i would take my chance against boston but uh Quite frankly, I think the Sixers will probably end up being favored against either team anyway.
1: It's also a small consideration that the Sixers would have home court against the Bucs and would not have it against the Celtics. I would probably lean towards preferring to face Boston if I were the Sixers for the basic reason that I don't think Boston can score on them. I mean, that's really been a hallmark of this series is that, you know, every once in a while, Terry Rozier can hit some shots he was good in games one two and six basically it, it, he, I think he hit all of his, sh- his threes in, in the first half of game six but they don't have a lot of guys that c- can create separation and so if the Sixers go to a kind of a, a more of a switch heavy defense there aren't a lot of players on Boston in this iteration you know next year's iteration of Boston this is a very different conversation who can create one-on-one and so Jayla you know if you're going Jalen Brown on Covington on Sharich as much as I like where Jalen Brown could go I don't think he's Going to do that much in that circumstance, Tatum. I've I've had a wonderful year. I've been I've been wrong to a point on on what he was. That's part of the reason why I like the full trade so much for the Sixers is that I was a little lower on Tatum. That's working out very well for them. But I just don't see Boston having that, and they can make it a rock fight. They can make it a slog and win some of those games. But. It's hard for me to see Boston winning that series because, for me, some nights the Sixers' shots are going to fall. And on those nights, I, I, it's hard for me to see Boston scoring like 110, 120 in a game in this series.
0: I don't disagree with a word that you said, which is why on the, the Sixers getting that three seed and moving up as they did and claiming it on the final day of the season was such a, a big outcome for them because the path to the Eastern Conference Finals – was real clear, and there was a, a a real you know they had a real chance to make that, like I said, I agree with everything that you just said I mean you look at some of these scores from Boston the last three games ninety two ninety two eighty six like this is not a team that I, and not to go back to the stone Age and use per game stats, but it 's just what 's right in front of me. This is not a team that I see scoring against sixers defense regularly. And like you said, for as great of a defensive team as Boston is, the Sixers will still have nights where they'll, they'll just make shots. They'll have nights where, ben, or, uh, where Joel Embiid will just force his way inside and get to the foul line, you know, 12 times. They will have nights where they can execute like that, where they can, you know, force turnovers and get out on the break. And for as great as Boston's half-court defense is, it's, it's going to be hard to stop the Sixers in an open transition. I agree with everything you said. It's just Milwaukee is so undisciplined. It's it's a coin flip. Uh, it's probably what you're you're more confident in picking apart. I do think, like I said, I, I think the Sixers should be able to handle either of these two teams, and certainly uh, certainly you know home court advantage I think does factor into it a little bit. Although I would be surprised if if it would take. Uh, and again, I try to stay measured, especially with the team I cover. But it would surprise me a little bit if it took seven games in either of these two teams.
1: Yeah, I, w- I would certainly say that's fair. And it could, you know, there's always so much variability in a series, but the, the fundamentals are really in Philadelphia's favor. And then, you know, certainly if they make it through, and that is still an if, but if they make it through, they will be facing a capable team that is probably playing pretty well because at this point, you know, it looks like whoever wins, you know, it, let's say it's Cleveland versus Toronto, it's going to take something to win that series. And so teams get momentum. I actually said this about the Rockets having to go through the Jazz Thunder winner. We'll see if that works out because of how crazy that series is is getting right now, but I'm I'm very excited to see how all that works out. And and one kind of abstract thing, but you're you're good at this. So this is why <laughs> I want to ask you about this. The Sixers face a series of really fascinating decisions this off season with ancillary players. A lot of the big decisions for them are already made in one way or another. You know, with Simmons and Covington, or sorry, and, and MB, those guys are already locked in on their contracts. You know, extensions for two of those three. Simmons still another couple of years on his rookie scale contract. The cap space they have, depending on what their battle plan is. So, what there are two different kind of. There were the, technically there are three paths that they could go down with the last guys on the Hinkie special for them. So it's Rashawn Holmes and T.J. McConnell. So because Hinkie was really really good at this, he structured these contracts in a way so that the Sixers have team options on both those guys, which could actually make both of them restricted free agents. So you could think about it as kind of a couple different paths. So one is they could pick up those options either for their own purposes or to trade them. And trading either one of those guys would certainly be interesting because having them on the minimum is valuable not only to the Sixers, but to basically anybody else. But then another option, and they might need to be squeezing every every dollar out of the cap space, would actually be to say, hey, this is such a limited cap year. We could decline the option on one of these guys and just get them to be a restricted free agent. And it's not like the Sixers are going to be a cap team, uh, you know, going to be a tax team this year because they're trying to use this cap space so it's an idea i don't think they're going to do it but i wanted to just run it by you to say how crazy is this like is this way too crazy for a team to do or is it maybe like semi-intriguing
0: yeah i certainly don't think they would consider that with uh holmes i mean he's fallen pretty far out out of the rotation there's just not a lot of trust between him and the coaching staff on the defensive side of the court and they don't like giving they don't like giving five men minutes if they don't trust them defensively and they don't like giving people minutes at the four if they don't trust their shot so i don't think i don't think they're looking at rashawn holmes as a long-term piece at this point the more interesting one is tj mcconnell and i think if markel fultz had had this season they were expecting mcconnell would have a more assured place in their long-term plans because i do think he's developed into a legitimate backup point guard like if you give tj 10 to 15 minutes per game like i think you're gonna he's gonna manage the game i think he's gonna give you a spark off the bench at times especially defensively and i could see them having a room room for him in their long-term plans but with his reluctance to shoot and with markel fultz's complete unwillingness to shoot i'm not sure you can necessarily commit to him right now until you have a little more knowledge of what Fultz will become. Because clearly they're going to give Markel Fultz every chance they can for him to refine who he was. And that's, you know, the next three years on his rookie contract at the bare minimum. And right now when Fultz comes back and you elevate him to being the backup point guard, unless you're willing to play him alongside Ben Simmons for a long stretch of the game, I'm just not sure what you're going to, how big of a role T.J. McConnell can have. And I think if anything, it's not even so much what T.J. McConnell is or isn't. It's that having two backup point guards who won't shoot, it's going to be hard to justify McConnell's minutes. So I think they'll probably end up picking up McConnell's option, but I don't think they'll try to use some of that cap space you know, to essentially do what they did with Robert Covington and and, and give him an extension. Or not even an extension, but even just making them a restricted free agent, like you were saying.
1: Yeah, do that. Do that whole little dance, and and also theoretically, that would put a, a limitation on doing the change, the shift from 2018 to 2019. Because if let's say, even if it's four million, that's four million dollars that they wouldn't have had to commit to otherwise. Yep. So, I, I mean,
0: to, to your point, that was something before the season that was something I was wondering whether or not they could do something like this in, in terms of making them a restricted free agent. But now with with the faults uncertainty, I think it's a little little less likely.
1: Again, going back, I think this is going full circle to our our conversations years ago on this show. It used to be that a couple months before this, we would be talking about who the Sixers could draft because that was all they were really looking for. But now looks like at least they'll start the draft with the 10th pick. I believe it's a 1.1% chance that they moves up to number one, though you could make an argument that it does, ben- it really benefits the Sixers in a kind of parallel way but different to what happened with the Kings last year where it could benefit the Sixers even if the pick moved up into the, into the other spots, the downside being that the Celtics would get a really good pick, the upside being that all of a sudden the Sixers go from having the 10th pick in this draft to having the Kings pick next year. So that that part isn't a question that's just me talking but the question is have you given any real thought to somebody that you would think is a good fit there or did the Sixers just pretty much go hey best player available see who falls
0: you know this is this is amazing first of all we got an hour into this podcast and we haven't mentioned a draft yet and for a Sixers podcast on your your show That's got to be a first. It has to be a first. This has never happened before. Second, I've I haven't written one article focused on the Sixers draft yet this year. I would have started that process in November in previous years. It's it's a pretty just really shows the turnaround that this team has had and how unexpected it's been now in terms of the the 10th pick in this draft you know first of all it jumps up to number one I think Luka Doncic is such an obvious fit I'm not even sure there's much of a debate there he would fit this uh this roster pretty pretty perfectly which neither Ayton or Bagley or anybody else with the exception of maybe Jaron Jackson I think he would fit well but I'm not sure you're not taking him with the number one pick in the draft so I do agree with you that jumping up to two or three, even though that pick would then go to Boston to finalize the Markel Fultz trade from last year, that would be good because now you get that uh, Sacramento Kings pick next year no matter where it falls. And with the flattening of the lottery odds, you don't really know where that's going to fall. So that, that would be a good outcome too. But if you stick at 10, you know, I Hale Bridges from Villanova, local kid, lot, uh, I tend to almost avoid saying they should draft local kids because it, it just – Sometimes you give the local guy a little bit of a bump, but I really do think the way he can defend his, his multi-positionality, the way he's developed as a shooter, adding another 3 and D guy to the stable of, of three, well, at least defensive forwards, that the Sixers have, and in Covington's case, a, a 3 and D guy. Adding another 3 and D guy, considering you have a 6'10 ball handler, I think would be just absolutely incredible. You know, Colin Sexton, I think if you're a little bit more sure on Markel Fultz, you probably don't take him, but I think having another... You know, another... Talented, you know, kind of six two six three combo guard w- would make a little bit of sense. I probably am focusing a little bit more on guard play than I am on forwards, just because you have Covington and Simmons and Sharich and, and and all that. But if you can get a forward Bridges who can defend two or three or four spots, then I think you do it. Uh, but otherwise, if, if it's a little less versatile of a player, I'm probably focusing a little bit on the guard spots. So somebody even like Lonnie Walker, another lo- local kid, uh, I certainly think he didn't have the season a lot of people had with Miami, had some trouble coming back from that injury. But I do think he's talented, and I think he'll probably get some some attention in that range as well.
1: It totally depends on who's around, but I would also seriously consider, if one of the higher-end centers falls, just the value of having a talented guy who at backup yep. center can all lobby those minutes and then be a, a filler when Joel Embiid misses time because you know you want to be patient about Joel Embiid's minutes and all that moving forward if let's say Wendell Carter happens to fall just because not that many teams need centers and there are a bunch of centers in this draft that could work out really well for them too
0: yeah no I, I mean it, it really could and like you said center's not one that you think especially I mean the Sixers very recently went through you know, Jaleel Okafor, Nerlens Noel, Rashawn Holmes still on the roster, Joel Embiid still on the roster. It's not something you traditionally think, oh, the Sixers need a center. But they are at the point where, like I said, I don't think they trust Rashawn Holmes. Uh, and, you know, Amir Johnson, he was good this year. He was expensive. I don't think they want to commit 10 or $11 million or whatever he got to the backup center spot. Uh, and he's on a one-year deal. So it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to replace him with a younger player who can give you energy and defense off the bench. And obviously, I mean, there's a lot of guys, some of them would have to fall. Bamba, obviously, I don't expect him to be there at 10, but if he does, you jump on him in a second. Wendell Carter, another guy I probably think is going to go in the top 10. But yeah, if he falls, he's certainly a, an option as well, which is probably a good you know, good thing for the Sixers in that there are a number of different, uh, with the versatility they have, especially at the uh, f- forward spots, they uh, they have a lot of places they can go. And I do agree with you. You want to limit Joel Embiid's minutes or at least give a viable backup so you're comfortable limiting Joel Embiid's minutes if you can.
1: Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun to to see where that goes. And as a frame of reference, they have moved up the rookie scale. But so so that player would make about if they keep the ten pick, move make around two million for next season, and then in the three and a half range for their second and third season. So that's the argument for getting a for drafting a center high there is that's a lot cheaper than a high. You know, if you want a high end backup center because of the pressures with Joel Embiid, as you said yep. with Amir Johnson, those guys are going to cost a lot more than that. And while center is not a premium position in the league, a cost-controlled center who Mm. might even have upside and the sixers could be thinking about that this this is part of the reason why you go best player available is because even if like so let's say the best case scenario that player works out better than anybody ever expected well then you can trade him. yep so and the nice thing about
0: centers too by and large i say if you're looking for uh if you're looking for immediate contributions from the draft and trade to pick because you're not getting immediate contributions from the draft, the one exception to that might be a shot blocking center, especially in a limited role, a 10 to 15 minute role off the bench. You can find guys who can come in, alter shots around the rim and you know you just have to keep them within the confines of your your defensive scheme. So I think if you're looking for somebody to step in and contribute on a, a contender or borderline contending team and you, you plan on keeping that pick, a shot blocking center is maybe the one viable path to that actually happening.
1: I think it might just be me being a little selfish, but I would love to see what Brett Brown and this team could do with Trey Young. Just the idea of, okay, this is a guy who has severe strengths and weaknesses. How can yep. we make this work? Because one of the options, so my one of these theories, when if we had more, more time, we would talk about this more, is I would love to see, because they have such good chemistry, see Simmons and Embiid largely paired together as opposed to a stagger, just because I think they build off each other. And so one of the ways that you could make that work is by just having, somebody a shot creator and just basically say throw them the ball this is incidentally the idea that the clippers have done with lou williams to a degree former sixer lou williams is the idea of just kind of like throwing somebody out there and saying just do whatever you can and i would love to see what trey young could do with defensive or defensive players around him but that's probably not the right pick for the sixers it's just me being selfish
0: well not only that but if trey young is going to translate i think you want some players on a team with real gravity around them too so it'd be interesting to see, you know, if, if he's if you're going to say what's a not necessarily what's the best case situation for the Sixers, but what's the best case scenario for Trey Young? A big like Joel Embiid might might be what he needs.
1: Yeah, and Embiid sets better screens than a lot of the other centers of his age, which I've gotten increasingly frustrated with over time with these <laughs> guys just just not really setting them. Or let's include Porzingis. Well, Porzingis might be a center once he comes back. We'll have to see with that. But yeah, I mean the Sixers are in this unusual place, and and there there is certainly an argument to be that the Celtics would be there too if they were if they were healthy, where they have this unusual combination of being very very good right now and. Having a bright future... But you have this appreciation of, OK, it still takes a lot to get from there to winning one or ideally even more championships than that, just because there are always going to be another couple of teams in that circumstance. And so they've done a lot right. I mean, the process worked out better than certainly almost anybody thought at the time and better than, you know, than all of that. But I'm excited to see how they get from this point. Let's say let's say how they get from B to C or from C to D.
0: Yeah, I mean, this, this is where it really gets. It's tough not that getting franchise players isn't tough it's the hardest thing to do in the sport but now finding the uh, the, the pieces to surround them with it's uh, it's certainly a i mean that's why you have when I look at guys like Daryl Morey and the way he reshuffles that deck on a near constant basis, it's a tough thing to do to find pieces that really fit around your stars. And, you know, for as much as we can debate Brian Colangelo versus Sam Hinkie, and I think that's the debate that will rage on for years and years and years, they need Brian Colangelo to be at the top of his game because it is going to take a lot of pieces. And the Sixers aren't yeah, – the Sixers are a little unique in that they can go out there and look for these – supporting pieces while still having a lot of the flexibility to do so like a lot of teams when they're at the point where they know who they're building around they've now you know used a lot of their cap space they don't have real good draft picks so Sixers are unique in there but they absolutely do have to hit these uh, hit these next decisions and hit them in a big way
1: anything else you feel like we discover or cover we've covered a lot of ground already
0: yeah i think i think we pretty much hit it there i I think an hour and 10 minutes is probably a probably a pretty good spot no i think uh it's it's really i mean just again i can't reiterate how much even somebody around the team every day how much the uh the quickness of this turnaround has uh, has startled me
1: it is absolutely it is absolutely incredible and we'll see where it goes from here thank you so much for taking the time thank you thanks again to derek bodner for taking the time you can of course read him at the athletic philadelphia does a great job with the sixers he hosts the beat on local sports radio there does some draft work for the athletics college basketball site and he's just a great person to follow, also on Twitter. Derek Bodner, NBA, D E R E K B O D N E R, One of my favorites to talk to. If you want to go back, Bodner is one of the more fun ones to listen to. Our older Real Jam radios, to just as a, as a time capsule of sorts, to to really go through. Where this team was, what they are, and it's been a pretty incredible run. Far, far from over now. I mean, we're at a at a point there. I was talking about kind of whether this is B to C or C to D. Don't exactly know where in in this whole dance the Sixers are, but hopefully, hopefully, it's close to the very beginning. And I'm I'm so excited to see where this goes. Of course, I'll have a new Real Jam Radio next week, probably talking more about what happened as the first round concludes, because that always happens at the end of this kind of big two-week span. And so lots of game sixes and sevens to go through. Really excited about all that. So we'll see where it goes. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA, at gmail.com is the way to do that. And if you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. might not respond because I have a lot of things going on. And if you want to support the show... There are a lot of different ways you can do that. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. You can also subscribe, download the episodes. That's great to do with the show because it comes out at different times during the week. Really do appreciate that. And just spread the word. I mean, that can be a really important thing. Telling people, hey, you might like the show, whether it's a specific episode or just in general. This is a good thing for you. Social media, in person, whatever makes you happy. Really do appreciate it. And. I'm really excited to, to see where all of this goes. You should also check out our sponsors for this episode. That's the Ross Tucker podcast. A lot of great stuff going on around the draft and True Car. Great place to buy new and used cars. So you can check that out as well. And lots of other great podcasts through Podcast One. I'm thrilled to be affiliated with them. So a lot of fun stuff going on all around the world of sports and entertainment, of course, as well. Podcast One does does far more than just sports. So you can check that out too. So Be back at some point next week. Don't know exactly when. Depends on when everything goes. But thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
2: If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited World Class Treatment Center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. You will also benefit from specialized programs, 24-hour medical care, and the comfort of our outstanding facilities. Let us help you.